Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters, friends and family here at Lindsley Avenue. And good morning to all of you who may be watching live or watching a little later today. It's a sad state of affairs when there are more people that watch remotely over time than who all can gather together. I think the views are toward 100 or over 100 most weeks. But uh, you know, we understand the, the need to put priority and safety in many cases above uh, exposure. Uh, when this first came out, I looked back to what the Gospel Advocate had said back during the Spanish flu in 1918. And uh, the government back then was desperately pleading with churches not to gather. And I think it was McQuitty, uh, the editor at the time, who said that uh, the church is not determined by a physical building, that wherever two or three are gathered together, Jesus is there in the midst. So we're glad you were joining us remotely, which they couldn't do 100 years ago. So uh, hopefully we'll all be able to be back together one of these days. How many times have we heard that? This morning I want us to take a little bit of time and look at a very important chapter out of the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look at John chapter 9 at a very terrible question in John 9. But that's all the foreshadowing I'll give about next week. John 4, the woman at the well. Before we dig into that, I want to ask how we're doing with the New Year's resolution that I had proposed a couple of weeks ago. It's already January 24th. Uh, we had talked about that back right near New Year's. How are we doing with the New Year's resolution, which I put out as focusing on loving God and loving our neighbor? Uh, it doesn't get any more basic. It doesn't get any more important than loving God and loving our neighbor. Are we doing better with that so far in these first 24 days of 2021 than we did last year? Because anything that we do, we ought to be doing out of either love for God or love for neighbor. And so I want to remind us that we need to focus on the important things. And I think Jesus will say that here in John 4 in just a few moments. So let's don't let a good start slip away. Let's love God and love our neighbor in any way we can find in 2021. Let's start here with John 4 and the first four verses. We'll do a lot of reading. The text will do a lot of the speaking to us today. John 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, parenthetical remark by John writing years later, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, about noon. It's about noon, so Jesus sits by a well to rest. He's fully divine, and yet fully human, too. The account of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include plenty of examples to show us that although Jesus is absolutely fully divine, he gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty. The reason that's so important is because, as we read in the book of Hebrews, we have a high priest who is completely, fully aware of all the challenges that we face. 
He's been tempted in every way as we have been, yet without sin. And it's that high priest Jesus that is our intermediary between ourselves and God. Fully divine and yet fully human. When you think about the actual route that Jesus is traveling, he's going from down in Judea up to Galilee here in the north. You can see it in the map. And there were two primary ways that the Jewish people took that. Uh, route took that uh, traveling from one destination to the other one way would be to go from down here toward the south almost off the bottom of the map down in Jerusalem and they would go over to the River Jordan and go up the Jordan River Valley and then cut back over to Galilee that avoided going through Samaria they went around Samaria Jesus is actually going all the way through a straight shot if you think about it, this uh, I like to compare this to the idea of going on the Appalachian Trail. I don't know if anyone's ever had the opportunity to hike on the Appalachian Trail, but for most of that, you're walking up on the top ridge line of the different hills or mountains, rather than going down in a valley and up. And so if you did that, this is the backbone of the land of Israel, the high point of the hills and mountains, uh, such as they are in the land of Israel, is kind of on this path going up from Jerusalem to uh, Galilee on a direct line. Jesus goes the direct line. Most people avoided going through Samaria. The reason for that is because there had been a 500 plus year feud between Jewish people and the people of Samaria. So what are the causes for this feud? I want to take just a moment and discuss that for a minute. There were four primary causes to this. First, the kingdom of Israel had split from Judah. When the kingdom split into the northern and southern end, there was a division into north and south. And Rehoboam did all he could to discourage people of the north to go down to Jerusalem to worship. Upon the Jews' return from captivity in Babylon, from the southern kingdom, when it is finally taken away into captivity, there had been a lot of people left behind. And people left behind had intermarried with the locals who had also been resettled there by the Assyrians some 150 years before. And in this intermarriage, which was not according to God's plan, they had diluted, if you will, the Jewish presence and had really in many ways forgotten whatever they had known about the Jewish worship. And so when they came back, they recognized we have a heritage with those of you that were taken off into captivity. We want to help rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah had said essentially, no, you have no part in this with us, which was a really tough thing to say, but furthered this separation, this division between the two. Around 170 to 165 BC, this is not recorded in the text of the Bible, but between the time of the Testaments, between Malachi and Ezra's time and the time of John the Baptist, there had been a period where the Jewish people in Judea were under great persecution from a man named Antiochus or Antiochus of Syria. In fact, he had been putting Jewish people to death who were observant of the law. If he found a newborn male child who had been circumcised, both the mother and the child were put to death. The child first hung around the neck of the mother and then she was hung from a spike on the wall of Jerusalem. Pretty harsh, but Antiochus of Syria was not wanting any more of this Jewish religion. We will be one people. We will be unified, and that meant following the gods of the Greeks and later the Romans. Well, while the Jewish people who wanted to remain worshiping God and following the traditions of the fathers were trying to do that relatively in secret, 
some of the Samaritans living in the land began pointing out to the Syrians observant Jews. It's pretty easy to notice because if you didn't get out and do any work on the Sabbath, the odds were that you were probably a observant person. And so you check into Billy Bob over there because I didn't see him at all yesterday on the Sabbath. I bet he is following the Jewish religion. And when some individuals, Jews, attempted to not be in the town on the Sabbath, the record says that many of them went into a cave. So they went and hid in a cave all day, sat in the cave, reflecting on God, not doing any work. They were reported, and the Syrian soldiers went and killed them all, burned them all alive in the cave. That's recorded in the books of what's called the Maccabees, period, things that were written during the period between the Testaments. And it began to get so bad that the Jewish people revolted against the leader of the Syrians. And a guerrilla war, they eventually get them kicked out and rededicate the temple. That rededication, recleaning of the temple is what Jewish people now remember with the Hanukkah celebrations that just finished a month or so ago. Well, when the Jewish people finally got back into power, it was payback time. And so when they were the people in positions of authority, they went up and destroyed the Samaritan temple, which happens to be located within visual distance of Sychar, the town that Jesus is now entering up on Mount Gerizim. So they destroyed the Samaritan temple up on Sychar. And as I say, they, once they had thrown out foreigners, they had destroyed that temple. So there had been a long 500-year feud. The destroying of the Samaritan temple had happened nearly 200 years before. So in some ways, it's ancient history, but we all have long memories. And so in the time of Jesus, roughly 30 AD, 180, 200 years before, and even hundreds and hundreds of years before that, the Samaritans and the Jews had been in conflict had been a feud between the two. Well, let's take a look now at what happens here. A woman of Samaria draws near to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, starting in verse seven, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I wanna stop right there for a moment. It would appear that Jesus' acceptance of people regardless of their background, regardless of who they were, regardless of where they came from, had begun to wear off, as it were, or sink in to his disciples. Because it's almost a certainty that before their association with Jesus, they never would have gone into a Samaritan town to get food or water. Because John had already told us, the Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews, and the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So it's beginning to, to rub off on them, because Jesus saw no boundaries. Jesus saw no feuds. He saw no divisions between people. The woman of Samaria said to him, said to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John puts in this parenthetical statement, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, the well is over 100 feet deep here at Sychar, 100 feet deep. If you want some water out of it, you've got to have something to get it out with. And most of the time, they would travel and go around with a cup. I used to think of it as kind of a canteen kit. You would have something that could have water in it or your food. So there's something he could have drunk from, but he can't get the water out of the well. And he asked this woman for some water as she draws it up out of the well. Well, 
For one thing here, we'll leave this one alone today, but he's talking to a woman in public. Those who considered themselves orthodox, those who consider themselves really, really observant and dedicated to God's laws and God's ways of thinking, rarely talked to women in public. It was, it was really forbidden in some ways, again, human laws, for rabbis to ever speak to a woman in public. The position of women in the first century was not good at all, right? What's Jesus doing with that position of women in culture? He's ignoring it because it doesn't matter what rules and regulations people had set up. He wants to speak to people. So we'll come back to women at some point in the future, but the focus here is on the Samaritan aspect of it. Jesus answered and said to her, he remember the woman had asked, how is it that you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan woman, for some water? He said, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You have nothing to draw with. And the well is uh, deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? The conversation here follows the same pattern in, as other conversations in the Gospel of John, same as the pattern of the one with Nicodemus. A statement is made, it's misinterpreted, and then Jesus explains it. Nicodemus had been told, you know, you must be born again, and he's scratching his head. You know, as an older man, how am I ever gonna do I need to go back inside my mother somehow and be born again? How, how's that possible? What Jesus said went right over their heads because they took his statement exactly literally. When the disciples and when people misunderstand Jesus in the New Testament, if you do a study of this, they almost always misinterpret because they take something with the exact literal meaning. Give me living water, running water, living water, and you won't be thirsty again. Well, I need some of that water. You can imagine if it were popular in the time, Jesus would have perhaps done a baseball. You know, boy, these people, they never see what I'm saying, so I need to tell them in a little more detail. This is Jacob's well, but the Israelites would have denied that the Samaritan's father was Jacob. The divisions ran deep. Remember the few. They would have said, you're, you're no descendant of Jacob. Don't go calling Jacob your father. Jesus ignores these kinds of meaningless distinctions. He doesn't look at these divisions, the feud. He doesn't care about the divisions and feuds. He focuses on things that really matter. So one important question I want to ask of all of us today. Do we focus on things that matter or things that don't? What seems to get people riled up these days? Look at our country. Look at our churches. Churches can get riled up over whether the carpet really ought to be replaced or not. Churches can get riled up, especially out in, in the country a bit, over how the Lord's Supper is actually done. Whether there, there have been churches that have divided because a cover was put over the Lord's Supper and whether that should have been taken off before or after the prayer. Talk about meaningless distinctions. Jesus could easily have been arguing with her, Jacob is really not your father. The Samaritans are not really worshiping God the way they should be. He could have argued about all this different stuff about the few. He ignores it. Because the important thing to him 
That's what he's going to address next. And that's the woman herself. So take a look. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, out of Jacob's well here, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will come in a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me that water so that I will not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still focusing on physical, literal water. She doesn't get it yet. All she heard was, we'll never thirst. Somebody told you, you'll never be hungry again. I mean, that's great. Won't have to cook anymore. Won't have to go pick up food someplace. You know, we do the same thing. I don't want to be harsh on this woman. We would do the same thing. We wouldn't assume somehow that there was a meaning beyond what Jesus had actually said. There's a danger there for us as well, that we will view things too literally and not see the real deeper spiritual meaning, which is really what's going to bring about change within our lives. Right? So she, Jesus shook her up and brought her life back into focus. There's been too much of this focus in her mind on this literal water over here. Jesus is about to verbally, in a way, smack her upside the head. What does he say to her? Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband. Go fetch your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. If we were watching this, if we had a drone or something, or we had a video camera watching this, I would have to think there had been a little hesitation between Jesus' question and her answer. If she answered immediately, very good for her, but I suspect this question jolted her a bit. And she answers, and she, Jesus says, you answered correctly. He begins by focusing this woman's attention, not on her physical needs, but on her sinful state. You know, it's well and good to feed people. It's well and good to give people things to drink, to give them clothing so they won't be uh, cold. I mean, the physical needs are important and sometimes urgent, but the ultimate importance is on the condition of the individual, on the inside. So Jesus makes her focus on her inner situation and her relationship with God. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Remember, no one can lie to God. Jesus is God sitting here at this well, and she could have tried to pull one over on him. I, I, He's out of town. You can't lie to God. And what do we, so many of us, spend so much of our time really trying to do, it seems to me? We put on a front. We, we hide the things we struggle with. We, in effect, lie to each other and try to lie to God. Because, you know, I know the culture will say, how you doing? Fine. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. It's when we really are struggling with something, the last thing we want to do in our culture is to admit it and ask for help. God knows every single thing that you did yesterday and everything that I did yesterday. He knows it already. The question is, will we be honest enough to admit our sinful condition and our struggles? This woman, 
Jesus says, you've, you've answered this well. You have freely admitted you have no husband. And then he lays out and says, in fact, I do know everything about you. You've had five husbands and the guy that you're uh, living with now is not your husband. We need to speak the truth and we need to live by the truth because Jesus is the truth. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. By the way, this mountain is Mount Gerizim. It's where that Samaritan temple had been. And notice she says, our fathers worshiped. She's got past tense right there. One of the reasons that's past tense is because 180 years before the Jewish people had blown to pieces of their temple up on that mountain. The feud's very, very evident. Where they're sitting, they could see one of the big results of this feud between Jews and Samaritans. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. There's one of two possibilities here. One is, is that she may be desperately trying to change the subject. I've heard that for a long time. It's hard to know whether she's really trying to change the subject, but I mean, if he just pointed out that she had five husbands and she's got a sixth guy now, she may not really be wanting to talk about her situation, her moral situation, her sinful state. She may be trying to change the subject. I mean, who likes criticism even when it's deserved? Nobody, nobody. Another possibility, if we want to take the high road, it's also possible she has realized her sinful state, that the words cut to her, especially after Jesus stated that she had five husbands and was with another guy now, right? And she may, in fact, want to know what to do about it. Sacrifice is required to forgive sin in both Jewish and Samaritan circumstances back in this time. And the Jewish people properly held that Jerusalem is where those sacrifices needed to be made. So, you know, they had changed where the worship should be occurring. Maybe she wants to know, how do I get back on track? You know, you seem to be a prophet. You just told me something no one should really be able to know that doesn't know me. Should I be trying to focus my future on Jerusalem or in this mountain where the Samaritan fathers had said we should worship? She may really want to know, how do I get things right? Such is the power of the word of Jesus. I'm going to assume, not that she wants to change the subject, that somebody's just told you you've been married to five men and are living with a six and they don't know you already. Are you really going to be able to change the subject? Right? He's already displayed knowledge you shouldn't have. I don't think changing the subject is going to work. Such is the power of the words of Jesus. Jesus said to her, picking up in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And that hour is today. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. He settles the question about whether it should have been Jerusalem or on the Mount Gerizim with that statement. But Jesus is less concerned with these specifics and technicalities because it's going to be changing. He says the Jews know about salvation. Salvation is from the Jews. But he's not concerned with that because her sinful situation is of primary importance here. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus tells this woman that the time of old ways and old rivalries is on the way out. It's going away. You could focus on it for a year, maybe two, 
but it's going the way of the dodo bird or the dinosaur. God can be sought anywhere at any time. He can be sought today. He can be sought today as well. Notice this statement too. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Notice that since God is a spirit, God is not confined to things. It's so common for the pagans to think that God or the gods would be in some sort of idol or that you approach the uh, gods through an idol or, or some sort of object. Most people who had been educated in those days really didn't think the gods were real. I mean, they didn't think there was a big house up on Mount Olympus uh, in the first century. Most of them had gotten beyond that. They'd become too sophisticated for the pagan ways. But... Even so, superstition and tradition lives on. God is not confined to things. He's also not confined to places. Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, this building. God is not confined to places. Jerusalem uh, would put a limit on the limitlessness of God. God can be approached anytime, anywhere, by anyone. Therefore, gifts to God must be gifts of the Spirit. You must give yourself. You have to give your heart. You have to give from the inside. God's not looking for jewels. He's not looking for uh, some kind of physical gifts. The gift has to be a spiritual gift of giving ourselves. And so for that, I want to remind us of Psalm 51, 16 through 17. The psalmist here says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The way to approach God today is by giving yourself and your heart to God, recognizing your sinful condition, just as Jesus is pointing out to this woman here the well in John 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. The parentheses there for who is called Christ is John adding the description to clarify the Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans actually looked for the Tahid. They looked for a Messiah, not the same one the Jewish people did. And the Tahid, by the way, was going to take vengeance on all the Jews. The Tahib, first thing the Tahib was going to do in the Samaritan point of view was go back and whoop up, if you will, on all the Jewish people that had destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So when this woman says, when Messiah, we know Messiah is coming, she's almost certainly thinking of the Tahib, the Samaritan Messiah. The woman seeming, seemingly confused and doesn't know quite what to think about worshiping there in the mountain of Mount Gerizim or worshiping in Jerusalem. She says, well, all this stuff will really be answered when the Messiah comes. Jesus said to her, talk about stopping a conversation in its tracks. I who speak to you am he. Forever and always, more than once right here, Jesus speaks truth. He is the Messiah, the one anointed by God, the one to save his people from their sins. And he's speaking to this Samaritan woman here at the well. At this point, his disciples came. They'd been into town to get some food. And they marveled. Look at this. They marveled he talked with a woman. They're not marveling he's talking to a Samaritan. Again, the status of women in New Testament times and what God does with that 
secondary status in the New Testament and through the gospel is worthy of study because women are not in any way second-class citizens. And they marvel that he's talking with a woman, but no one said, what are you doing? You know, or what do you seek? What are you talk Why are you talking with her? Nobody asked her that question. Apparently, they had not tossed off all of their past prejudices. Hunger had driven them into the Samaritan city. They were enough aware that I shouldn't be drawing distinctions. They'd gone into the city, but they haven't lost the prejudice they have against women. Prejudice has been with humanity seemingly forever. In the first century, it wasn't based on skin color. It wasn't based on anything other than the same sort of stupidity that often comes to people. How do you solve prejudice? You realize that we are one people when we become a member of the family of God, period. What thinking of ours does Jesus challenge? Jesus is challenging much of the disciples' thinking. He's challenged the woman's thinking. What thinking of ours does Jesus challenge? The woman then left her water pot, went into her way into the city, and came to the men. Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. So she's, she's telling people, you've got to come meet this man. He told me everything. He knew about all my five husbands. He knew about Billy, who's also been living with me, or whatever his name was. And say, come on out and see, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we've been looking for? Jesus' talk had affected this woman a great deal. Her first impulse, look at this. Her first impulse was to share her discovery. That ought to be our impulse. If we're truly focused on our New Year's resolution, we should be not only loving God and loving our neighbor, we should be talking about God to our neighbors because that's the best way to love them. In the meantime, his disciples urged him and say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? Notice again, they misinterpret because they take a statement he made literal. There's another study there, another study right there. Again, they miss his point, so he makes it clear to them. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and when then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. His food was to do the will of the one who sent him. What's our food? What is it we seek? So many things that we would seek are not the right priority. We should be seeking God and the things that he wants to be present in our lives. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him, because of the word of a woman who testified. The word of a woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many of them believed because of his own word. Notice, none of this would have happened if Jesus had not ignored concerns of the day and if he had not spoken to this woman of Samaria at the well. 
we miss opportunities when we allow custom or prejudices today to stop us from at least saying, God sure has made a great day today, hasn't he? We need to have Jesus on our lips wherever we go. He continues to break barriers down. I've said before that whenever Jesus encountered a human barrier in society in his time, he kicked it over. We can't let barriers that are present today continue not only to separate us from each other, but to separate us from the task we have, which is to talk about Jesus to the world. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that he is, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. An amazing story. This is our last slide. It's an amazing story. The Son of God, tired, weary, and thirsty. Don't forget how it started. Tired, weary, and thirsty. The holiest of men listening with an understanding heart to a very sorry story. This woman's life was really messed up. And he listens with a heart of understanding. He doesn't actively condemn her, but he tells her the truth about her situation and wants her to know there's still hope for her as there is for all of us. Jesus breaking down barriers of nationality and custom in so many ways, really and truly here, the beginning of the gospel for everyone. Because he's speaking to a woman, he's speaking to a Samaritan, and because of that, so many people hear and learn that he is in fact the Christ. Can it begin for you today? If you are already a member of God's family and your life is not showing love for God, love for neighbor, there's good news for you, and that is you can change that life and get back on track today. Whether you're here in the auditorium or if you're listening at home, reach out to us. There are people who would be happy to pray with you so that you can be forgiven and get back on track. It's only the 24th day of 2021. You have today to begin showing your love for God and love for neighbor. If you're not yet a member of God's family, if you're watching this and you're not yet a member of God's family, these individuals heard about Jesus and understood that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. He's your Savior too. They understood their sinful condition. You've got to understand that all of us are sinners. It's only when we bring our lives to God, when we decide to repent, to change our lives from wrong to right, to focus on living for God instead of living for ourselves and are immersed in the waters of baptism that we can show dying to self and being raised to walk in newness of life. We all have that choice every day. Who will you live for today? Who will I live for? Will I live for myself or will I live for God? The choice is always yours and the choice is yours right now as we stand.